0: This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 76.
1: Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreau.
0: Hello again, and welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is Session 76 you're listening to, and this episode is brought to you by our friends over at Focal Monitors. Audio-Technica, Gearsleds.com, and Universal Audio. Good to be back with you. We are, yes, we are on number 76, and each one inches us closer to uh, episode 100. We're working on where, well, me, I'm working on with a group of people. Yeah, so I could say we're. We're working on a, uh, a good 100th episode celebration. Once again, totally top secret. I'd have to kill you if I told you. So, uh, I'm not going to tell you cause I need you around to listen to the show. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's going to be coming up. Um, I know it's a while it's going to be down the road, but I'm just kind of starting to, you know, build the momentum and talk to you about it, uh, because it may involve some plans on, on the part of some of you. So, you know, I want you to, I'll give you a save the date kind of a thing if it comes to that level. So uh, where are we at? Where are we at? We are, uh, we're on show 76 and we have another great guest today. I have Gary Hobishon, mastering engineer of the Bay area. Gary's been at audio for uh, over 30 years. And he began as an assistant engineer over at uh, Bell sound studios in New York city. Uh, but he's been a fixture on the Bay area music scene since moving to San Francisco uh, in 1976. So he's worked in all different areas and recording and music and, he was a tape historian at Berkeley's fantasy studios and he was chief engineer at San Francisco's CD studios. So he's, he's been around, he's worked on projects for NRBQ, the dream syndicate, flipper, the feelies, Dr. John and Willie Nelson. And, uh, you know, you can always of course Google him and check him out yourself. So, uh, anyhow, Gary Hobish coming up here on the working class audio podcast. Let's see what's new. What's new. Um, besides this cup of coffee, actually this cup of coffee is kind of old. I need to get a new one. You know, been doing my uh part-time K Fog gig and uh had a couple shows, did a Steve Earl show, which was really great, and did a show with a new band uh recently, uh the Struts. And you may have seen them on the Stephen Colbert show. But uh real interesting. It's been great actually. Uh it's a great place to great place to do that kind of work, uh, you know, which basically is essentially live multi-tracking and mixing in one thing in one shot. Uh, the process is interesting from the perspective of just what I decide to put into it. Now they pay me an hourly rate and when I'm there, but I've been really trying to really kind of put myself a little bit deeper into it without costing them much more. It's kind of one of those, you know, you reap what you sow kind of things. So, so for example, uh, Steve Earl came in and we, we recorded that and, I make a print of the mix, you know, as I'm going so that as soon as I'm done, I can export a 48 K 16 bit file for the video people that have just videoed that. And that goes up on the website. That's just kind of a spontaneous mix that happens. And you know, it's, it is what it is, but then there is a, uh, there are shows that they actually play these things on, 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 in the regular, you know, like morning morning show or, you know, afternoon show or whatever. So I've been opting to take the sessions home to my mix room and remix. Not totally from the ground up. I basically take the Pro Tools session, although recently... Uh I did notice I was uh doing some mixing in Pro Tools 12 and I was like, why is this sound so strangely grainy? I don't I don't understand. There's I was hearing something. I don't know what it was, and it could have been ear fatigue really, to be honest with you. I I don't know. But the minute I put it in Studio One, uh everything kind of cleared up. I don't know what the story was there. I don't know if it was it's the same system, so it's and it's all clocked off my universal audio uh Apollo. So I don't know. I can't tell you. But anyways. I've had a little better luck uh, doing these remixes in Studio One, although I do, you know, I have done the stuff in in Pro Tools recently. Like I say, I have been doing some of these remixes and not billing, because it actually doesn't really take me that long, because I've already done all the work, and and I know this kind of flies in the face of, you know, what I mentioned about Tony Maserati, you know, saying, you know, don't do work for free, but... I kind of feel like I need to put it out there I just need to i need to really put my best foot forward for these people and uh and I've been complimented on on the work, which obviously you know that feels good, but you don't know where that could lead. That could be a positive thing that comes into my favor in the future. who knows anyways it's a good gig it's a it's a fun gig and uh if you uh, care to follow what I'm doing, you can always go to my Matt Boudreau Facebook page, which is, you know, you can probably find me, Matt Boudreau, mixing, uh, sorry, recording, mixing, mastering there on Facebook. Feel free to check that out. But uh, enough about me. I'm, I don't want to talk about me. I want to talk about uh, what we're doing here. Let's go ahead and jump into it with our friend Gary Hobish here. So I we went over to Gary's place, which is located over at Secret Studios. And if you remember back many episodes ago to the, uh, episode with Robert Preston, the number escapes me right now and I'm not going to look it up. So, uh, but it's on the website, the Robert Preston episode. When, when, I talked to Robert, uh, he was running a recording studio out of secret studios in San Francisco and secret studios is a, um, a rehearsal facility. So you have all these rooms and they're filled with bands. And then in the midst of all that you have Robert doing Get Real Productions, a studio there. And then you have Gary doing mastering. So they each have their spaces carved out, you know, like double walls and uh, spaces around them so that the bleed from the bands is minimal, if not, um, uh, or, or non-existent, depending on the time of day. But anyways, Gary is in this facility. That's the long and short of it. So I met up with him in person not a very big place, very small. So one room place, you walk in through an airlock and boom, you're in the room and that's it. Uh, Refrigerators right there. There's a vent blowing in fresh air. And yeah, it's, it's a true working class mastering shop that is just, Gary's cranking it out. He's working for independent bands, some major bands and then uh, doing a lot of reissues too. stuff that uh, is just you know, being remastered. He's remastering old classics. So you might see that on his website, which you can check that out at ahammer.com. That's A-H-A-M-M-E-R.com. And, uh, yeah, A H A M M E R.com. And yeah, Ahammer Mastering. You can check everything out about Gary. So let's get on with it, man. Let's quit talking and drinking coffee. You could tell I've had several cups already. Gary Hobish on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Okay, and they're off. And we're off. Welcome to the podcast, Gary. Nice to be here, Matt. Thanks for asking me. (laughs) We're here at uh, Gary's studio, uh, which is located in Secret Studios, which is in the same building as former uh, working-class audio guest Robert Preston's uh, room. And so, uh, as a matter of fact, I said hello to Robert on the way in. And so, uh, yeah, we're here in Gary's room. And Secret Studios is a rehearsal facility that's been in the Bay Area for... God, I can't remember how long. How well, long?
1: Uh, in a studio that I previously ran down on Napoleon Street in San Francisco, uh, CD Studios, mm-hmm. it was also known in the old days as Rhythmic Rivers, if you go back that far. Uh, Secret Studios started, it was in one of these warehouse rental spaces mm-hmm. on Napoleon Street, and C- and Secret Studios was in a space opposite the parking lot. So actually... Uh, I've known Hap, the guy that runs Secret Studios here, for, oh, since 1984. Okay. So Secret actually goes back in a different location, back at least to 1984.
0: It's been in this location here off of uh, Cesar Chavez. uh, Oh, uh,
1: 1992, I think. Yeah. Uh, I was in a band uh, back then called Pimp Slap. Right. And uh, we had one of the first rooms. We had this Big irregularly shaped room. And I loved it. I I loved it. I loved the irregular shape because it meant that we didn't get bass buildup in the corners. Huh. I was in this building when he opened it. And then in 19, no, it was 2003 when McCune Audio, who used to occupy this half of the building, the rental company, Mm -hmm. moved to South City. And Secret Studios took over this half of the space, and I got a call from Hap, and he said, I have a room that would be perfect for mastering. We'd like to have it, uh, have a mastering facility in-house. It happened to work out in timing with me where I had to leave my old location. And so I stepped in, uh, been in this room since uh, June of 2003.
0: Excellent. And how do you find it running a mastering room in a rehearsal facility?
1: Well, you got to schedule very carefully. Okay. During the day, it's not much of a problem at all. And, of course, I'm not really running open mics very often. And as long as I can get used to, like, the little problems that you have when, uh, you know, bands are rehearsing down the hall and they're at coliseum levels, (laughs) which is, by the way, you guys listening to this, don't do that. There's absolutely no reason to do it. It's not just because of my studio being down the hall. It's, 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 it's just crazy. It's just crazy. I don't know how you guys can hear yourselves, but, uh, I, I schedule around that. And when I work by myself, I don't really have a problem with it. Uh, when I do have a client in house, I try to schedule that when it's going to be, uh, quiet in here so they don't get disturbed by it.
0: Yeah. So it doesn't really affect you too much because you, you kind of know the anomalies and you know the workarounds and, and, like Robert's room is, I you know, I know no no room is really perfect, but, you know, Robert's got some double walls, I believe. Do you as well? or are you Yeah, up? I do. Okay.
1: I do. I, well, I have uh, this uh, vestibule in the entryway that I built, so there is an airlock in there, and there is a double wall uh, between me and the room next door, which is not a rehearsal studio. It's a little-used uh, utility room with, uh, there's some running water in there sometimes. But uh, the next room down the hall that has a full band, mm-hmm. there's, there's double walls on, on both sides there and uh, I'm, I'm one room removed from any direct action. That, of course, doesn't really help all that much when there's a band down the hall and the bass is loading because bass propagates at, you know, 15 feet or more. And the guy in the room who's pumping the bass, he can't even hear it. Mm-hmm. It hasn't propagated uh, yet, um, the wavelength. And as it comes down the hall, you get a little... Right. stuff <laughs> coming down the hall. So uh, if I'm working on a restoration project where I'm listening for like tape anomalies and tape dropouts and things like that that I'm trying to fix... Uh, I'll need to check those in headphones to make sure that I'm not hearing something coming from outside the room. But right. uh, being in the rehear- a primarily rehearsal facility gives me an opportunity to keep my rent low, which means I can translate that to uh, lower rates for my clients. And so clients who would, if they want a professional mastering job and they want to go to, some of the other fine engineers that we have here in the Bay Area. which we have many. Yeah. Um, They're going to be paying, part of what they're going to be paying in the premium rate is real estate. That's true. And so I'm able to keep my rates at a point where people who uh, might otherwise not be able to afford a fully professional mastering job can't afford one.
0: Interesting. When considering a mastering engineer and the price, uh, I guess that's one thing that's, whether you're an engineer going to a mastering engineer or you're a musician who's seeking a mastering engineer, that's not always something that we factor in, that we naturally think, well, why does this person cost this amount of money? Well, if you look at their situation, you know, maybe they have a fancy building or, a, you know, a beautifully laid out place, which is great for them and nice for you when you visit but not really effective on the pricing for the clients because you're paying for that
1: to be fair that's not all you're paying for it's factored in yeah, it, yeah you yeah. know it's it's it, it's factored in you know those uh the 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 fancier rooms are uh have more they're able to put more effort into isolation and the sound of the room and mm-hmm. uh you know maybe you know fancier uh monitoring systems mm-hmm. um and maybe they can uh, come from uh, uh, you know analog formats that require more space. Often, um, especially if the room is uh, is one with a lathe that's capable of actually cutting lacquers. Oh yeah, you know, you, there's all sorts of factors that uh, that play into that, like you know having to have complete floor isolation for the lathe. That that's that's very important. expensive. Yeah, yeah, and it's more than important. It's essential.
0: Well, so mastering engineers really vary a lot in terms of, um, pricing and, uh, mastering in itself, as far as the perception of mastering is really, uh, always fascinated me and, you know, what tools people use and where they're set up in their room. And I'm kind of, uh, I wouldn't say I'm, uh, I obsess about it, but I definitely pay attention to like, you know, Uh, any snobbery that goes on or any kind of, you know, well, well, you know, they don't have, you know, this. And so they must not be good. And, you know, and quite honestly, I I know people who don't look very favorably on recording engineers who, who dip their toes in mastering, but I know mastering engineers who dip
1: their toes in recording. I'll I'll tell you my philosophy about that. And it's going to sound like uh, some degree of, Self promotion here, and it's not really meant that way. But when you have somebody who is primarily a mixing engineer and wears that hat, um, and I'm talking about somebody could be a really top notch mix, uh, mixing engineer. Uh, mastering is a specialty and requires you to wear a different hat. Mm-hmm. And having worn that hat. I think it's possible that a mastering engineer can go sideways into doing some mixing easier than someone who's mixed and not been a professional mastering engineer to move into mastering. It isn't really a hierarchy that way, but they are different perceptions of things. Mm -hmm. And you'll find that there are a lot more mastering engineers who came from, well, once, once you've you know, been in mastering a long time and you're listening for certain details, that gives you an insight into how to mix. Mm You know, we'll often uh, get consults from artists and engineers. Well, we're partially through with this mix. Uh, We'd like you to take a listen to it and see what you think. And uh, sometimes it'll be an issue, a minor issue where, okay, I can handle that in here in mastering. You don't need to remix that. Or, okay, that's something that needs to be handled on an individual track basis better than having to affect the overall mix, trying to save this one problem on, say, a woofy bass or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And so coming from mastering, you have that insight into what the mixing process is. And not all mixing engineers have an insight into what the mastering process is. It's not... There's a perception, and... Thankfully, this perception is starting to fade away. But there was a perception for a while uh, from artists and producers who didn't understand what mastering was. And this is especially in the digital era, of course. But that uh, mastering was basically just making sure all the songs were at the same level or making everything louder than everything else. Mastering is for making everything louder. And that is so wrong (laughs) that's that's crazy i would agree i've had projects come in here that were really well produced and really well mixed and the producer felt it was necessary somehow for him to slam a brick wall limiter on the whole thing before it got into the mastering room and there just wasn't a whole lot i can do with it and he kept complaining no matter what i did that it wasn't loud enough And uh, he had slammed it, Mm. high compression, high brick wall limiting, on this project that really sounded good if you took all that stuff away. It would have been a really good basis to begin a mastering on it. But he didn't understand the process. He was a terrific mixer and a good producer, but he didn't understand what mastering was for, and so he stepped all over his own good mixes. Mm. And thankfully like i say that perception of everything having to be louder than god is starting to go away
0: because in the world of digital we have so much headroom and we don't have a noise floor to fight
1: well exactly that's well, that's the irony of the whole thing isn't it uh is that we come up with this new recording system from analog we had uh vinyl in let's uh, let's let's have a reference point of like 1980 Five eighty-six. okay when when digital really started to take hold and vinyl records at their best have a usable dynamic range of 55 or 60 db before you start getting into the noise floor of the vinyl itself and i'm using for a reference something like say let's say king crimson's lark's tongues in aspic okay. which is extremely wide dynamic range and The only vinyl copy I've ever heard that you could really hear the nuances of what was going on in the really low volume sections that opened the record were these beautiful Japanese pressings that we got. All the other pressings, even if they were good, they just weren't good enough for this music. So we invented this digital system that gives us a bottomless noise floor and the ability to get all that wide dynamic range in there. and especially for classical music and jazz and stuff that really has some nuance. Mm -hmm. And you can argue that the digital system at that time wasn't perfect, and, and it wasn't, but let's put that argument aside because it's pretty darn good now. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And the irony is that technology also gave us the possibility of using compression and limiting techniques that we hadn't had before. And to give an understanding of what we'll call the loudness wars. Mm
0: -hmm. Uh,
1: Basically, you have a dynamic range in music. A rock record, a a good rock band, oh, maybe it's 15, 20 dB of dynamic range, you know, not a a whole ton, but that's like going from, say, an acoustic strummed guitar to a full band with drums and bass and keyboards and all the other production stuff at its loudest point. And what we perceive as volume is really an average it's not a not measured by peaks. It's measured by average. And when we brick wall limit something, we're taking that average level and we're bringing it closer to the maximum allowable peak, which on the one hand makes everything perceived to be louder, but it lessens the dynamic range, so the music loses its ability to breathe. And it over the long haul, it tends to push a listener away from his speakers or from the performance, instead of inviting them in and being part of it, it. It puts up a wall between you and the music that you're listening to, because everything is at the same volume all the time. Right. Every instrument is at the same volume all the time. That That's just not natural. It doesn't happen that way. <laughs> and so digital gave us the ability to do that, while at the same time giving us the ability to have the wide dynamic range.
0: Right. You could say that we, many people have this ability this great dynamic range uh, to utilize but we don't it's like you know many people don't fully utilize their brains (laughs) (laughs) so we're not really reaping the benefits of digital like we should be when we apply these brick wall limiting things and slam things and make things as loud as possible
1: well there's all sorts of misperceptions that lead an inexperienced artist to go that route Uh, i'll get people in here all the time Who's saying? Well, we want it to sound like it's on the radio, and I got—I have a couple of reactions to that. You know, the first is, well, I hope you get it on the radio, and the uh, another one is, well, you need to set your sonic sights a little higher because most radio sounds terrible. There's a station here, a local classic rock station. Okay, and they, like many other radio stations, take whatever you give them and whatever they get from the record company and whatever CD they're playing, and they do their own sonic crushing to it. And it gives them, if they know what they're doing, uh, if they can be creative with it, it gives the station a sort of certain sonic character that can be recognized and branded. Oh, yeah. But very often uh, they will have the compression operating in the exact opposite of what I would consider a musical way of using compression. Uh, For instance, uh, see, normally um, I like to have some subtlety in the compression that I use in mastering, unless the material calls for otherwise. But if it's a well-recorded material, I like to preserve the character of the intent of the performance and the mix Mm -hmm. as much as I can while bringing it into uh, a good level for the marketplace, say. But uh, uh, I'll generally have something with a longer attack time and a shorter release time. And that will allow transients to come through in the music and the compression becomes more transparent. It's not as obvious. Mm-hmm. And what this classic rock station does is the, exactly the opposite, a fast attack and a slow release. So say you're listening to uh, Dave Matthews' track that has a really nicely recorded acoustic guitar in the front. And that sound is coming through loud and clear on your car radio as loud as anything else that's there. And then as soon as the drums come in, their compression scheme, the fast attack compression scheme, causes the relative level of that guitar to drop off a cliff to make room for the drums because there's so little dynamic range to be used. Mm -hmm. And it's a completely unnatural sound. So, you know, I tell people, you want it to sound like it does on the radio, the best thing you can do is to give them the cleanest best sounding master you can otherwise you're kind of putting it through a meat grinder twice
0: you know i had this experience many many years ago um actually it was probably one of the first records i ever uh produced uh recorded that came out commercially and it was uh, i think it was around 1994 and we didn't do a proper master job essentially you know i took the mixes that were on dat And I transferred them through a uh, 2BQ to another DAP machine and kind of, you know, did a rough mastering job, we'll say. And then that was essentially turned into a CD and that was manufactured. Well, what ended up happening is, is the CD volume was drastically lower than pretty much everything else in the marketplace. And I was very disappointed by this in the beginning and, was just like, oh, this is a drag. This is my first CD that I've done with these guys. And here it is, just breathtakingly low. Well, I heard it on a local radio station, uh, KUSF, actually, mm-hmm. at the time. and Long live KUSF. Long live KUSF. Um, and when I heard it, it exploded out of the speakers. I was like, it sounded amazing.
1: Well, let me ask you a question. Uh, how did, did it sound that way compared to the songs that were played around it on KUSF? As good, if not better. Proving the point. Proving the point that a. You don't have to have a super loud CD to have it come out correctly on the radio. And the cleaner, best mix you can give the radio station, the better it's going to sound. Yeah. And the odds are that it was surrounded by records that had been overmastered.
0: I was stunned. And it really taught me a valuable lesson right then and there Mm -hmm. long, long ago. So that's, that's interesting. This, this, our discussion of dynamic range and all that. And it's, you know, there's so many factors and so many people involved sometimes in the production of a record and one person's insecurity about, Oh, it's not as good as this record I've been latched onto for, you know, the last five to 10 years. We have to make it louder. We have to compromise, you know, this and that. Sometimes I I never I don't know, always think the agenda is for people wanting to I never think somebody purposely wants to sabotage their own record, but they want it to sound as good in their ear mm-hmm. to something they've been listening to, where, you know, whether it's agreed upon or not, that, that is. Yeah, know, that standard. that sort of
1: that sort of begs the question uh as to whether their reference actually sounds good.
0: Right. <laughs> And that's, you know, beauty is in the eye you know, of the beholder kind Yeah, of well,
1: the assumption is, the, the the prevailing intelligence is that if a record was a huge hit, part of that factor is that it sounds good. And that's, that's not an unreasonable expectation, but it's also not a guarantee.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of great-sounding records that don't turn out to be hits, that aren't successful. And then there's a lot of shitty-sounding records
1: that are huge. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, it always sort of amazed me. Um, when I was in college radio and, uh, the raspberries were, were big and power pop was really starting to come up and I love that stuff and, uh, uh, go all the way was, you know, like a big hit. And when I heard the vinyl on that, and of course there was only vinyl because this was <laughs> 1973. Um, it, was really highly compressed and sort of distorted pretty much exactly what you heard over AM radio. And, you know, it's a great record, but it's not a great sounding record. It just has a ton of energy. And I think in terms of, uh, at least in power pop, the kind of energy and performance, not, not just in power pop, I shouldn't limit it any sort of record. The, energy and performance and character and personality of the musicians making the record, if that comes through, everything else is secondary. If you got a good song and a great performance, mm-hmm. everything else is secondary. So if you're using uh, a reference like, say, Dark Side of the Moon, and you're saying, well, gee, my record doesn't sound just like Dark Side of the Moon. It doesn't have that sonic character. Well, you know, you recorded it in your bedroom. They didn't. uh <laughs> You know, pay attention, more importantly, to if the character of the record grabs the listener, Um, in terms of uh, connecting with your audience, which I think is a a better phrase than having a hit, especially these days. Mm -hmm. Connect with your audience, make a record that you're proud of, that you can listen to, that you can sit through. Um, And and believe me, after working on a record for two years, three years, uh, like some people do... um, if you can enjoy listening to the album, uh, after that long production process, mm-hmm. you know, you've probably got something there, uh, if you're not bored with it yourself. And that's another reason for going to a mastering process because you have spent so much time on a record, being close to a record, even if it hasn't taken two or three years, that probably means that you've spent a more concentrated amount of time. Uh, you know, like instead of working on it a couple of hours a week you work on it 10, 12 hours a day for two or three months you know uh, you're really serious about it and, and you're saying, okay I'm a musician making this music is my day job and I'm going to concentrate on this you get very close to it and at the end of the process you really need another pair of ears that hasn't been too close to it um, nobody should proofread their own book <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's the best analogy I've ever
1: heard. You know, you got to get a different pair of eyes on the book, you know, otherwise you're going to be, you know, spelling, you know, with your you know, eyes before E's after C's, you know, yeah. and stuff like that. So by the same token, you need another pair of ears, experienced ears that are going to come in fresh and, you know, be able to hear things that maybe after being close to it, you're just not hearing anymore. You know, not everybody
0: subscribes to what you're saying and, and, I'm going to say if you subscribe to that concept of having an outside mastering engineer, um, the benefit is, is that the that mastering engineer has none of the emotional baggage associated or tied to this project. They come in fresh and their agenda is to make it sound good. They don't really care about anything else. They haven't gone through the arguments in production or, or, the right the good times or the bad times in the studio they don't they haven't been through the mixing process with you know everybody you know doing too many revisions and it's an objective ear it's an absolutely objective ear and and when there's a relationship too with the mix engineer and the mastering engineer and there's a history there do you think that that always is good or can that sometimes hinder the situation I've never run across a
1: situation where that was a bad thing.
0: Okay. Never. Because I'm, I asked that question because, you know, I would imagine that if that mastering engineers had certain experiences with that mix engineer, good, bad, or otherwise, that they would start to, you know, assign, you know, either pigeonhole or profile that person as well. This, uh, this guy, you know, he always slams it on the stereo bus or he always, you know, makes the snare drum way too loud or whatever. And apply that to what they always get. So that's why I'm I'm kind of playing devil's advocate on that. Oh, concept. sure. Well,
1: you've got a uh, you're describing a situation where uh, it, it, there's there's a trust that's built up when you have that kind of relationship. You mentioned Robbie Preston over at Get Real before. I have that kind of relationship with Robbie, and uh, I always know what to expect. Uh, well, often <laughs> because in Robbie's situation. Um, a lot of times uh mixes are budgetary considerations. So there is a you know a wide variance in in what he is able and allowed to come up with based on the time allotted to it. But on a general basis I know when I get something from Robbie I know it's going to be at the right level. Uh I know it's going to be technically ready to master. It's not going to have to go back because it's been you know put through uh, some kind of ringer. I know it's going to have a a generally good sonic character Mm -hmm. and also the trust works the other way because he can tell me well let me know if you have any problems and if uh, there's a problem i run across in a session that is better fixed in the mix he's close by and he can take care of that and uh, and 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 get that back to me very quickly often in the same session i can call up robbie and say you know um this is this is fine but you know the tone on the bass guitar would pop through a lot better against the kick if you could go in there and just add a dB and a half at uh, you know one and a half k to the bass. Mm-hmm. You yeah, that that's a pretty specific thing I'm coming up with right sure. now, but but it's uh, it's 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 sort of typical. Or I'll hear some sort of noise that I'm unable to get rid of because I would have to be working on um, a two-track mix. And if I got rid of that noise, it would also uh, adversely affect a different instrument. Uh, So something like that is better worked on in the mixing stage. Sure. Uh, So if you have a good relationship with a mixing engineer, you can call him up and say, okay, we have this issue. And there's not going to be some kind of personality conflict where he thinks I'm putting down his mixing.
0: Right. You know, it's just,
1: it's a good relationship where you have these two different parts of the technical process and it's a communication
0: Let's talk a little bit about business. Do you work on a, um, a project basis or do you work on an hourly basis? What's your? What's your I generally level? work
1: on an hourly basis. Okay. Um, it's. I mean, after years and years and years of doing this, I can ballpark. I can listen to something and say, okay, you got a, you got a twelve-song record, and I know it's been mixed on this certain system, or it's been mixed by this engineer, and I know stuff's going to be technically up to scratch. So I can give you know, a good ballpark for what the project will cost, but ultimately uh, it's an hourly uh, for me. I know a lot of mastering engineers charge by the song, and I guess uh, there's a mathematical way to figure out some kind of average where that's going to work, but I I don't really feel comfortable. Uh, I'll occasionally, if I know the artist well enough, or if there's a special situation and they discuss it with me beforehand, I'll come up with a flat project rate. Mm. But within that flat project rate, it's going to allow for a certain amount of rework if they take their reference disc home and listen to it and they need something changed. And uh, that flat rate has to be able to absorb that. That's true. Yeah. I had uh, one project come in. It was pretty well recorded, but the artist was uh, very, very fussy. And every time uh, they would come in and we'd have some process of uh, EQ and compression going on, she'd hear something in the mix she didn't like, and she would take it back to the mixing engineer. And we ended up doing seven iterations of the mastering on this because she kept moving the target. Mm. And for that reason, I tend to want to stick with hourlies. It definitely puts up a
0: limitation for them to consider so they don't uh, take advantage of... You know, flat project right. rates and nitpick, and move, as you say, move the t- move the target is a is a perfect example of clients that can drive anybody crazy, no matter what the industry. <laughs> if their fussiness is leading to you know, nitpicking something that is debatable whether or not it's going to improve the the record or not, there is at least that. Okay, well, you know, that's fine,
1: but I could do that but I got to charge you. Exactly. And that is... Uh... And in this case that I'm describing, um, the main contact who was basically signing the check uh, was at odds with most of the other band members as, uh, as to whether spending this extra amount of time was worth it. Mm-hmm. So you know that it was, uh, it, was, it was this particular person being fussy and not something that was obvious to a whole lot of people. But, on the other hand, they're the ones whose name is in big letters on the front of the record, not mine. Right. right. And I want to make sure that when they put that record on, they're satisfied with it. I will try and guide them. If they're on a budget, I will try and guide them as to where their time might be best spent. Uh, But, ultimately, they have to be happy with it. They're not bringing it in here necessarily to put my stamp on it. They just want it to, to sound good, and I want them to feel that way when they put the record on.
0: All right. I hope you're enjoying the interview here with Mr. Gary Hobish here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. It's that time again. I want to do a sponsor break with our friends from Audio-Technica, but I'm going to highlight a product that is not exactly working class, and it's just so crazy that I wanted to tell you about it. Basically, it's a hybrid headphone amplifier. I just heard about this. It's... um. What does it say? Two times E88cc vacuum tubes in preamp stage, Toshiba bipolar power transistors, SyFam VU meters for precise metering, custom-made R core transformer, Lundahl transformers. And get this eight times headphone output jacks. Eight headphone output jacks, two RCA and balanced XLR inputs, USB and spedif digital inputs includes the power cable. I hope so. Um Let's see, what does it say? It's really crazy. It's the ATHA5050H Hybrid high res Audio Headphone Amplifier. Hybrid because it employs a pair of tubes at the preamp stage and transistors at the power amp stage. can be used when paired with headphones to bring warmth and depth to music and is powerful enough to drive eight f- headphones of varying impedances without any problem for home or studio applications. Yeah, equipped with two analog inputs. And two digital inputs, and the DAC is optimized to be compatible with digital audio formats up to PCM 32-bit, 384 kilohertz and DSD-128. Really over the top. Pretty crazy. Uh, Additional features include classic analog VU meters with VU range selector switch, a large volume control knob, and an input attenuator switch. The HA5050H lets you choose from wow, this is cool. Four different output impedances, two outputs each to experience the sound that best suits you and your headphones. So, you know, all these different headphones on the market. I mean, right here, I've got my ATH-M40Xs and I do happen to have a pair of uh, MDR-7506s, the Sonys. Got a pair of AKGs off in the corner there. Yeah, pretty crazy. So like I say, not exactly a working class audio level product, but if you're looking for a super duper high end headphone box, you might consider this. This is pretty over the top. I got to say, I'm just so blown away by it. I saw a, a picture of it and it really caught my attention. Then I started to read about it and was like, Oh man. Yeah. So there it is. The, uh, Audio Technica ATHA 5050H. You should Google it when you hear, after you hear this, you should go check this thing out. It is insane. On the gear lust factor, I think that many of you will look at it and go, oh, I got to have that. It's it's pretty fancy looking. So there it is. Yeah. Just uh, kind of off a beaten path. I know this is not the typical product that I, I highlight from Audio-Technica, but it is just so insane. I had to mention it. So there it is. Google it and uh, check it out for yourself. The ATHA fifty fifty H from our friends over at audio technica. Let's jump back into it. Let's uh, let's talk to our buddy, Gary Hobish again here on the working class audio podcast, your process in terms of, uh, are you primarily mastering well, I'll just, you know, make it black and white. Are you, are you doing an in, in the box kind of thing, or is there a hybrid kind of a thing going on? Or?
1: Uh, it's a hybrid most of the time. Um, I'm primarily in the box, but I have a few pieces of outboard gear that I like on certain things, certain compressors NEQs. EQs. And so I'll go through, uh, you know, you notice my metric halo box, which uh, has beautiful top-notch converters in them. Uh, And I'll be able to go through a couple of uh, specialty pieces of gear when I need to. But I have no problem with doing it in the box if I'm getting the sound that I want.
0: Do you ever have any clients, whether... Engineers or, or or musicians, come at you and judge you based on equipment used versus the actual outcome of the project. Does anybody ever like
1: try to qualify? Well, what what are you using? Well, of course, when someone calls me up out of the uh, blue, the cold call me, and they're talking to a bunch of different mastering engineers, mm-hmm. uh, they will ask those kinds of questions, and they're legitimate questions. Mm-hmm. And when someone uh, asks if I don't have a particular piece of gear, and another mastering engineer does have this particular piece of gear, that, you know, I'm going to get the sound that I'm going to get. And I spent many, many years in pure analog. Uh, I was uh, mastering records at Fantasy uh, from the early 80s on, you know, cutting, cutting vinyl and at the early stages uh, of, of digital, when we first started producing CDs over at Fantasy, And I have a lot of experience knowing what that sound and what that tone is. Hmm. And if they feel that they can only get it by going somewhere where they have this specific kind of gear or they want an all analog tape path and they feel that that's going to give them a better record and they're going to feel better at the end of the day because they did that. And as an aside, that's, I think mostly a purely personal feeling, but like I say, they need to be happy with their record. They can certainly go to a mastering facility that has all that, but that gets into, that's the other part of getting into a facility that costs a lot more money. You're going to pay for that privilege.
0: Do you think that there's within the mastering world, a bias or perception that mastering engineers who don't have an army of, of analog gear to go through, um, is there a perception that those those mastering engineers are not as good? This is kind of going back to the whole mastering snobbery within the mastering community at large, you know, not just in the Bay Area.
1: Sometimes it's a little hard to fight that perception. But once someone hears a demo from both places, they're going to hear whether there's a difference or not. And I would have to say that nine times out of ten or more, if there is a difference, it's not because of the equipment, it's because of the engineer. Yeah. And it's not even necessarily that one engineer is better than another. But you know, every just just like with mixing engineers, you're never gonna have two mixing engineers mix the same song and have it sound the same. Even if they both do it in the box, it's not gonna sound the same. Whether it's in the box or analog, uh, well heck, the same engineer is not gonna mix the a record so it sounds the same twice. Right. You know, if you if you mix a if you mix a song on Say six months apart, mm-hmm. and you're not relying on total recall uh, for your mix. If you're saying, "Okay, I want that mix I did six months ago," it's okay, but I think it can be improved. <laughs> you know, you're going to come back, and it's going to sound completely different, no matter what you do, and you're the same engineer. Yeah. So it really it comes down to the ears of the engineer at the end of the day. I think.
0: With regards to your uh, your rate, what it, if I may ask, what do you charge per hour for 2016? you know, at this time, current, current time, If if some, assuming somebody's listening to this in, you know, 2018. Oh, sure,
1: sure. Uh, my hourly rate is $85 an hour. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh,
1: and it's been that way for at least four years. How is business for you
0: in general, would you say? Pretty good. And how's it been over the last, let's say, since, you know, the last eight years, you know, since the economy, you know, in the U.S., you know, took a tumble and
1: well, uh, it goes through ups and downs, of course. Yeah. Fortunately, I have some uh, catalog clients, labels oh. that I do uh, regular work for on both new and uh, a lot of these labels are reissue specialists, and so I get a lot of work in here that is remastering of uh, you know older albums. Some sometimes classic, sometimes really obscure. Uh, that has been, uh, you know, new stuff that's being done by independents or uh, reissues that are uh, being licensed from uh, major label catalogs. And so that tends to smooth out the ups and downs in the local independent uh, musician putting out their own record market.
0: Like Rob Preston, his business of, of, you know, his studio really benefits from being located in a rehearsal facility mm-hmm. and I
1: assume it's the same for you yeah yeah uh, a lot of my clients uh, a lot of my local clients come directly from in with, within this building we have a nice little cottage industry going here like I mentioned uh, I get a lot of stuff from Robbie and uh, uh, Mark Pistol also has a, a nice studio here uh, there's a there's a couple of nice places you know within this facility mm. and uh, I have the ability to, uh, you know, every time someone walks by my door to their studio, they see an advertisement for a mastering room. So uh, it, it's definitely been of benefit uh-huh. to be in this facility. That That's one of the other positives about being located in the rehearsal facility. Um, it's, uh, you know, there are a lot of mastering rooms that are located in upper level recording studio environments, you know, like Fantasy or Hyde Street. or uh, Studio D. I don't have that, but I have a lot of DIY recording local foot traffic. I would say that's
0: almost better in some respects, just to be where the action is, you know, where the musicians are.
1: Yeah, and I have a good relationship with uh, a lot of the musicians in the building that You know, if they haven't translated into uh, mastering work already, you know, the potential is there with every single one of them.
0: What's been your long-term survival strategy from everything from how to handle your money, how to handle your business? What's your over, is there like an overarching philosophy that you've kind of utilized and tweaked over the years or has it been all kind of ad hoc?
1: Uh, I'd have to, if I was being honest, I'd have to say it leans toward the ad hoc side of things. Fair enough. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, well, let's see, let me take uh, one example is that when it comes to say upgrading equipment, uh, I have to let the business drive that, you know, if I get a new piece of gear or something, is that going to increase my business or is it going to be a drain on it, you know? I think about things like that, but other than that, not really a whole lot else. Uh, Diversification helps. Mm -hmm. I do some mixing, you know, like we discussed before. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that is, you know, I could say a different hat. It's sort of a different business model as well because they tend to be longer-term projects. A a mastering job will generally take, you know, a day for an album, one day or, or less for an album. If you're mixing somebody, it can take, you know, days, weeks. And so when there is uh, that available to me, and I do have uh, a number of clients who do keep coming back to me for mixing mm-hmm. uh, on a regular basis because they like what I've done for them before, and that is just that's just another thing that smooths out the ups and downs of the economy when you can get some uh, some longer term projects in.
0: I ask this question a lot of people with
1: regards to gear. The last
0: guest on the show, Mitch Dane, he has a business manager, actually, for his studio. And Mitch said whenever he, he'll go to his business manager and say, can we afford to get this piece of gear? Business manager's first question is, will it make you money? Exactly. And, you know, Mitch, you know, his answer is not always yes. So he's got a reason with that.
1: Sometimes your eyes or your ears are, are, you know, to mix a metaphor bigger than your stomach.
0: Right. And do you ever I don't know with with regards to gear it's it's such a <laughs> it's such a complex thing like you say because you know you're just you're inundated with you know beautiful pictures and magazines mm-hmm. and advertisement and it really brings you in and you just oh I think I need that. Why do I need that? Oh, because I want it. <laughs> and you still and I don't know, I've I've mentioned this on the show. Shiny before. things. We all like shiny things. We like shiny things with knobs and, and and meters and I always start to I I used to just start to justify it in my head. Now when I look at it, after many of these conversations, I have learned to just take some of those you know, will it make you money kind of uh, thought processes and, and look at that and go, let me think on this for a week. And really, by the, by the week's end,
1: I've forgotten about it. Um, I think in a mastering studio, there is a little less temptation than that. When you're mixing, sometimes something is new. So, oh, well, this thing is going to sound so great on drums or, or, or something like that. Uh, and in mastering you're really stepping back and looking at the overall picture. So it's more important, I think, for a mastering engineer to be comfortable uh, and know the gear that he has and, and, and know how his room sounds. Uh, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to have the most expensive monitors in the world if he knows how to listen to the ones he's got. And uh, the ultimate test of that is if he's doing work, if that mastering engineer, not necessarily a he, is is doing work that translates well into the outside world, then all that stuff is working. And my philosophy is generally not to screw with that too much because that is my main function, is to get stuff that comes in here out in a shape where it'll translate to a car radio and to earbuds and to a good stereo at home. As far
0: as the gear is concerned, you don't really like to change things up too much because, I mean, you've got years of... An established workflow.
1: Yeah, it helps me work
0: efficiently too. And when you introduce something new, it it can potentially monkey with that whole situation.
1: Sure, it can. Yeah. If you uh, get enamored of a new, more accurate pair of monitors, you can bring them into your room, and it may be listening for a week or two before your brain has really tuned into how they sound in your room. It's not. There's no magic bullet to taking a great piece of gear and bringing it in and assuming that it's going to do something magical that you haven't been able to do before.
0: Yeah, that's for sure. In mixing, it's, uh, uh, I can tell you that, from my perspective, seeing constant, uh, the ability to download a demo of a plugin for 14 days, oh, I'll download that right now. Oh, I'm going to use that on this mix. And then the mix takes a little longer. And you get really accustomed to having that plug-in. And then, and then the you, demo runs then out and you haven't runs done out the mix yet. And you, <laughs> haven't com- you haven't committed the mix, right? That's when it's like, oh, man, do I got to buy this? Or do I need to go back and find something to replace it? That's It takes a certain level of restraint, I think, no matter what part of the process you're in. What's your advice for... Um, those who would like to get into mastering and that advice could apply to somebody who's already been, you know, a recording engineer for a long time or even somebody that's going to be starting fresh. You know, what's, what's the things to consider?
1: Well, uh, the first thing is, the first thing to consider is whether that's a hat you want to wear. Um, it's a different philosophy. Uh, it's different approach than mixing. So you, Have to, it helps if you want to uh, be in a situation where you have more diversity. If you're, say, you know, a mixing engineer, you might be perceived as having, say, a specialty of being, uh, like, say, a heavy rock mixer. And that's not to say that that's all you can do, but you've had a successful record that way. And so it tends to bring in that kind of business. Uh, When you're in mastering, you of necessity need to be able to listen to and work on all types of music, Uh, not just music. I mean, we do sound effects records here. We do spoken word projects, uh, need mastering, Uh, a lot of editing and stuff like that. So you have to be willing to make that particular change Mm -hmm. and, and, and work that way in terms of getting into mastering. um, That's a difficult one to answer because uh, I get a lot of requests from interns Mm -hmm. who say, Oh, I'm really interested in mastering, but, it's not the kind of thing where you see the operation I have here. So it's basically a one man operation. There's not a whole lot that, uh, that an intern intern can do for me. Right. Uh, except, and, and, and all I can do is, okay, well, if you can do this and this and this for my studio, then, you know, I will train you, uh, by observation. You know, you can sit in on sessions and find out what the workflow is. And, you know, and, well, I guess I guess I'm describing a basic intern situation there and I'm and I'm 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 loath to have somebody working for me and not be able to pay them. I think that's one of the one of the downfalls of the studio system that we've got now is there's a lot of free labor being exploited. Yeah. And I don't really like to take too much part in that, but how else is somebody going to get trained and mastering except for sitting in on a session and observing? I Didn't go to school for mastering. I didn't go to school for audio. Those places were few and far between when I was coming up. I was doing it as a hobby since I was 10 years old. And when I got into fantasy, it wasn't with the idea of, okay, I'm going to become a a mastering engineer for the rest of my career. Uh, I I didn't have that thought at all. Um, I went in there as a tape librarian and assistant engineer. Hmm. Uh, I started at uh, at Bell Sound in New York, and uh, that's what I did there. They that was my first assistant engineering job. It was straight out of college, and their entry engineers basically ran their tape library, and uh, they had tapes there from uh, the Stones had their were storing their live library at that studio. Uh, they did a lot of cutting. They were part of the uh, Buddha Records. Um, conglomerate, uh, and being a tape librarian is what got me into fantasy. Having that experience is what eventually got me into fantasy when I was competing with all these other assistant engineers for open positions. Oh, this guy has tape library experience and we're opening a brand new building. This is 1980 when the uh, building at 10th and Parker was, was, was built up. Hmm. Uh, and they were moving the tape library in there that was stored in San Francisco. And it was built up from scratch. And I had that experience on my resume, which set me apart from the other uh, potential assistant engineers. And I got in. And a couple of years later, um, dealing with the fantasy catalog, I had a lot of interaction with George Horn over there, who was cutting the fantasy catalog. And uh, when George needed uh, an assistant, he talked to uh, Roy Siegel, who was the studio manager at that time. And I got placed into mastering. And so I learned mastering, you know, basically at the hands of someone who'd been doing it for 30 years. Um, he's still there, isn't he? And he is still there. God bless George. He's still there. Wow. <laughs> and <clears throat> he's still doing great. He's a lifer. He absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Interesting.
0: Um, I like to ask this sometimes, uh, what's working for you in this business? What, what's, what's making it work? business, philosophy, anything, anything in particular?
1: Well, I would just say that I'm really lucky to have been able to carve out a niche for myself in music. Uh, I, I started this as started down this road as a musician. I approach my engineering work as a musician and I get to, uh, listen to a lot of people's great creativity, even if they're not super well recorded, there's always something in a project that I hear that catches my ear and, oh, wow, this is really interesting. And every day I hear something new and every session I do, Mm -hmm. there's something new to learn. And I love that.
0: You know, some people, when they listen to music and I know that you're listening to music, it's part of, part of your business, obviously, but, you know, when we listen to music, I think a lot of people, uh, get stuck in certain, at a certain point that, you know, they always go back to the same records, you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, maybe it's the records they listen to in high school or college or, or middle school, junior high, whatever. And they, they stop growing. Um, and occasionally they'll buy, you know, a hit that comes out. I, I, you know, I, I, I think for myself, you know, I kind of think of my, um, one of my, uh, one of my brothers, my oldest brother, uh, he tends to like listen to the same stuff. He's not a very adventurous listener. Beauty and mastering from your perspective uh, or my perspective of you is that you get to have your ear to the ground. You get to hear what's coming out constantly. Oh yeah. And get paid for
1: it. <laughs> well, you asked what drives me. You just answered that question. <laughs> um, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm really lucky to uh, be able to, you know, do something I love and to be able to make a living off it. Uh, not everybody has that. Uh, and I'm, you know, I'm grateful for it. And, I, and you know, I, I thank the uh, powers that be every day that I'm able to, you know, I'm, that's, I'm not rich, you know. If I did, I'd have that business manager. Uh, but uh, I'm able to, uh, you know, make enough to keep doing it. And, and I look forward to coming into work every day.
0: That's, I think that's a good note to end on. That's great. This has been fun. Thanks. Thank you. All right. Gary Hobish on the Working Class Audio Podcast. There it is, another interview down with Mr. Gary Hobish from A Hammer Mastering here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Well, it's that time, my friends. We are out of time, so I'm going to just wrap it up right now. want to, of course, thank everybody involved. Cliff Drewsdale on the music. Chuck Smith on the voiceover and Cole Williams on the social media. And I also want to thank our sponsors, gearslets.com audio technica, Focal monitors and universal audio. And I want to thank you guys. I appreciate your listening. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, working class audio sponsors, the forum over at gearspace.com called audio life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to Gearspace.com, check out Audio Life. Many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on Gearspace.com. So check that out.